0: Well, Mandino's 1968 best-selling book, The Greatest Salesman in the World, wasn't exactly the place that I expected to be digging into as I prepared for the message this Sunday. But last uh, a couple days ago, I was listening to a podcast, and one of the guest speakers quoted a portion of the book, and it just leapt off of the screen. And uh, I'll share a little bit with you of that portion later, but I, I, I had to dig a little bit further apparently this book was written about 55 years ago, and it's, uh, as I said, one of the best-selling books at the time that tells a story. It's a fictional account of of a poor camel boy named Hafid who discovers these 10 scrolls, or who discovers the secret to success as uh, these 10 scrolls are handed down to him from a successful businessman. And he learns all sorts of practical wisdom, uh, such as, these are some of the lessons that he learned, I will control emotions in everything that I do. Seems pretty practical. I will act as if every day is my last. And, And then there's this one. I will love unconditionally. Now, if you're thinking that that last one Sound a little bit out of place in a book about success. Well, you know what? I'm going to say you have a point. You have a point. Uh, why, why, would it, it would, why would it be advantageous to, to love without expectation uh, in order to, to gain something? Or if you're trying to gain something, how could we achieve success by so freely giving of ourselves? Well, last week, Pastor Brian kicked off our our new sermon series uh, where we are spending some time in the Gospel of John exploring some of the I Am statements of Jesus, where he invites us to take a deeper look into who he is by saying several things about himself, like, I am the good shepherd, or I am the bread of life. And Pastor Brian set the stage so well with a sentence that he shared last week that I decided I was just going to rip him off today. The better we understand who Jesus is and why he came and what his life was about, the better we understand who we are and why we're here and what our lives are all about. Well, pulling some wisdom from a book that was written in 1968 might feel like ancient wisdom to some of us here and it might feel like it was just yesterday to others of us who are here. So I'm going to try to lay the playing, I'm going to try to level the playing field a little bit and we're going to go back 20 centuries for a little bit more ancient wisdom. Uh, We're going to go right to the night before Jesus died where he shared this one command that distilled in just one sentence what life is all about. Love each other as I have loved you. Well, moments before Jesus said that, he spent some time washing the disciples' feet. And in the ancient world, that was a self-effacing gesture. It wasn't something that common people did, especially people who were considered respectable people like rabbis or teachers Um, But what elevates and amplifies this this act of love so much more, this humble act of love, is that Jesus did it to somebody he knew would betray him, and also to somebody he knew would deny him. Uh, This takes on greater significance in light of the cross that's to come as well. And Jesus explains what this means. Uh, to, To love each other as I have loved you is to lay Down one's life for one's friends. To lay one's life, lay down one's life for one's friends. Unconditional love. Well, I thought of several things when I think about what it looks like to lay one's life down for one's friends. And first of all, it's to uh, put the needs of others before our own. It's to put others First it 's to value people on their own terms and not just value people in terms of what they can do for us or what gain I can have from the relationship that I might get from that person uh, to lay down our lives for our friends it you know what it, it frees us from consuming thoughts about our personal needs, uh, the things that we might worry about on a daily basis when we 're not just thinking about ourselves. We're thinking about the needs from others. It gives us a special kind of freedom. And lastly, we get to experience joy through the gladness of others when we put on unconditional love, when we lay our lives down for our friends. No, loving unconditionally may not lead to some forms of success, but loving unconditionally leads to, it, it leads to human flourishing. It leads to the best possible kind of life, best possible kind of life we could have. It gives us a different kind of freedom in our marriages. It, it brings us to new levels of joy in our friendships, and it helps us to find a beautiful peace in family and at work. We could say it this way. That kind of love is what life, is what life is all about. It's what life is all about. Why then is it so hard for us? And is it so rare that our lives are so, why is it that our lives are so rarely about that? If we just stop for a minute and we all brainstorm some ideas, some of the barriers that get in the way from us uh, attaining and enjoying unconditional love, we could think of several things. A fear would be one that maybe tops the list. Vulnerability and its cousin shame. All of those things kind of weave together to create this wall and this barrier to expressing and experiencing unconditional love. But as surprising as it might sound, this is this is another one that came to mind. Is it is it possible that one of the biggest reasons that we don't experience and, and give away unconditional love is because of the pull, the pull of pleasing people, the pull of pleasing people? And now wait a minute. Some of you are thinking, isn't isn't that love, but isn't it loving to please people? Haven't you heard the 11th commandment? Happy wife, happy life? <laughs> the 12th commandment is really similar. Never burden a mom who is reading a good book. Look, I, hey, I'm all for the happy wife thing. Believe me, I, I'm, I'm all for that. But, but the expression that we use when we talk about pleasing people... Maybe it can be better expressed as sometimes, sometimes appeasing people. And here, here's why this is so different from unconditional love. Because it brings an unstated condition back into love. We're trying to do something to get something from somebody else. Uh, whether that's personal favor, whether that's to get them just simply to like us, uh, whether that's for popularity or or it could be physical financial gain, we might do that with our our bosses, with our employers, so that uh, they'll like us and they'll give us a raise or or more time off. and And who wouldn't want those kinds of things? Who wouldn't want those kinds of things? But but this is this is why this is important. When we put the condition back into unconditional love, we lose the beautiful experience that comes with it. We lose the beautiful experience that comes with it. Uh, Instead of valuing people, we use people. We use people for our personal gain. Not only that, we refuse ourselves the joy of watching other people gain from true sacrificial giving. And you know what? We become entrapped by our own personal needs and, and by the fear that we're not going to get a return from the love that we get back or, or even the shame of rejection. Conditional love is stifling. And conditional love, it, it can be painful. It can be painful too that 's why what we 're going to talk about today is so important when people pleasing threatens to prevent us from enjoying love as it was meant to be. How can we grow how can we grow in the kind of love that gives us life that 's the question that I want to explore with you today, and to do that we 're going to rewind again back to twenty centuries to that night before jesus died and we're gonna go on a journey with jesus and and to learn from him in the gospel of john in chapter 15 now we're going to post those verses here on the screen uh, um, but today especially i would encourage you if you have a bible with you to open that bible up to john chapter 15 we have bibles in the back in that bookshelf you can Grab one, even take it home with you, or just open up your smartphone and Google John chapter fifteen to make it really easy on yourself because the text that we 're dealing with today it 's a it's a, little, it's a little bit more to to swallow that 's not a good word it 's a little bit more to digest we 'll use that word instead, so we really want you to we want you to be able to follow along with some of the ideas here. Well, I imagine that that uh, walk from the upper room that night must have felt strangely quiet the meal wasn't like so many of the other meals that the disciples had experienced with jesus usually there was a special guest involved but uh, they knew that this one was set apart and this one was important because it was just jesus and them and then it started out with that whole foot washing thing that caught everybody off by surprise jesus said something to peter about about denying him could that Could that be true? And then then Judas. Judas got up and he he left the room. And and some of the disciples, they were saying, well, he he must be going uh, to get some some food to prepare for the festivities. And other people were saying, no, he must have got up to get up and to give to the poor. But they left that room before Judas came back. and, And chances are some of them were starting to have questions. As they walked away, Jesus was... Telling him about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit would be sent to help them. And then he said something about him going to the Father. Was Jesus going to leave them? It must have been pretty silent that night. Now, we don't know exactly where the, this upper room was at in Jerusalem. But chances are... Uh, When they walked from that upper room to the garden, they they walked by the temple, which would have been really prominent. And perhaps Jesus broke the silence of that moment by pointing up to the temple where one historian tells us there was a giant relief of a vine emblazoned on its side. They They would have seen it clearly. Perhaps he pointed to that when he said what we're about to read next in John chapter 15. I am the true vine. And my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. Well, every branch that that does bear fruit, he prunes so so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you you can't do anything. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. You remain in me, and my words remain in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourself to be my disciples. Well, I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, And you know what? You're going to judge me. I'm okay with that. That's all right. But every time I, I hear... Um, that people who are just kind of starting out in their faith, and they're just curious about faith, that they should go to the gospel of John. I wince. And and look, I get it. The gospel of John is beautiful. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. John opens up his gospel without pulling any punches at all. Uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Whoa! It's, it's amazing stuff. But the Gospel of John, I think, is also one of the hardest Gospels to understand out there, of all four of them. And there's several reasons for that. Uh, there's poetry all over the Gospel of John. Uh, what we just read is, is rich with poetry, Jesus relentlessly uses metaphors throughout the book, so much so that his disciples are constantly confused. And, uh, you know, don't take my word for it, but I I really believe that confusion is is a motif throughout the entire book. So sometimes we'll read something from the Gospel of John, and some people say this about Jesus, and we say, well, that makes sense, but then Jesus goes on to correct it, especially if we lift it out of the context. Uh, confusion, confusion, metaphor, poetry, it, it's all sometimes a little bit hard to deal with. I, I say that by way of disclaimer because today we're going to take a little bit of a different approach and we're probably going to spend just a little bit more time in the text than, than we usually do. And we're going to try to not keep it too technical, but uh, I just want to give a fair warning. And uh, for those of you who are like, whoa, that's, that's a lot, uh, we're going to get to something practical and meaningful at the end. But... But we want to really sit in this text for a little bit, just to soak it in and try to understand exactly what Jesus is, is trying to tell us. In the verses that we read, there is first a lot of repetition. There's a lot of repetition going on. And then that's because of the poetry here. It's kind of like a, a sonnet, for those of you who remember, or maybe you write sonnets or, or haikus. There's a certain structure at play that, that's used to uh, convey meaning through beauty. But this is an ancient structure that we're not as familiar with today, and it's called a chiasm, which gets its meaning from a Greek word meaning crossing. Okay? Let's simplify that. It's like an X. It's like an X. Yeah, I got it up there. Beautiful. Uh, if you read it from from right left to right and I gotta think hard about this <laughs> the first idea the A, the, the A idea is at the top and uh, the second idea is the B idea the A idea it starts it off it's the first one at the top but it's the last one at the bottom following along and then the second idea is it's the B idea well, the B idea is the second idea at the top, but it's the first one at the bottom. All right? Well, in a chiasm, the, one of the most important ideas is actually in the middle. It's the one that our author wants to draw our attention to. Well, we'll get to some of the details, but let's take a step back here. Because Jesus is using a chiasm to, to build... Uh, This whole chiasm is built around a metaphor. Jesus is the true vine. That's what he says. Well, true as opposed to what? What's the the false vine? Maybe the false vine was the, the temple, if he was pointing to that. Never says it. But Maybe it was the temple. Maybe the false vine was Israel. Several times in the Old Testament, Israel is compared to a vine. It could have been that but also Jesus uses the word true like in reference to true bread in the gospel of John not to mean true as opposed to false but real real it's the real thing he talks about the true bread in contrast to real bread or physical bread that that the israelites ate in the desert and and that was certainly real but it wasn't real in a spiritual sense so there's a good possibility that what Jesus is saying is This is the real, I am the real spiritual vine here. Well, that's not the only only metaphor going on here. There are other figures in this metaphor too. God is the gardener. The disciples whom he's speaking to, they're the branches. And then there's the fruit and the branches that, that don't bear fruit. We'll wrestle with those in a minute. But let's go back to our chiasm. First, the first idea that Jesus mentions are the branches that don't bear fruit in verse 2a. And then he comes back at the very end and, and talks about that more, a branch that is thrown away in verse 6. Well, the second idea, the, the B idea, is are branches that bear fruit. Those branches that bear some fruit, even a little bit of fruit, Jesus says, will be pruned so that they can bear more fruit. In other words, simply, the branches that bear some fruit will bear more fruit. And then he comes back to that that idea in the second to last part. Uh, Do I got my arms right? This is getting confusing. Uh, In verse 5, branches that bear some fruit will bear much fruit. In verse 5. What he wants to draw our attention to is in the middle. It's the action point of all of this remain in me remain in me that sits at the center so now you have a way to kind of conceptualize it as a whole at the top and at the bottom are the results in the middle is the action point if you want positive results you guys are doing an amazing job. You're sticking with me, and I feel like a clown up here, kind of waving my arms back and forth. This is good. Okay. So so what's next? Uh, it's important to know what the crux is, what the top and the bottom is. We're going to take a quick breather here, because naturally some questions are going to come up, some hard questions. So let's address those, and we'll come back to the crux. First of all, if you're, you're new to faith or... You're curious about faith here, whether you're joining us on site or whether you're connecting with us online. Uh, chances are that, that that idea about the branches being cut off and cast aside, that's not going to sit well. Maybe. And even if you've been a person of faith, a follower of Jesus for a long time, that may not sit well for you, too. I just want to say that that I get it. And... And these are things that we talk about. These are challenging subjects that we like to talk about, and I like to talk about with you personally and just hear where you're coming from and wrestle with an open mind over a cup of coffee. We can't explain the the whole width and breadth of this, at least in this message, maybe another time. Um, But here's a couple points. Number one, if it doesn't sit well, it, it wasn't meant to sit well, for one thing. But we also have to clarify who this is talking about in the context. And it's actually talking about someone, not someone, but a, a kind of person that's very specific. It's not talking about everybody. It doesn't conceive every uh, the whole world in mind. It conceives a specific kind of person that walked with Jesus and then intentionally, clearly, definitively turned away. That's who it's talking about there. And you can't have, you can't mention those kind of ideas without having one person in mind in particular in this context, and that's Judas. The one that was missing from the scene. Judas casts a shadow over this entire passage. That's, that's Judas here. Okay. There's another person here that's going to cause some trouble. He's there. And that's Peter. And Peter's going to deny him three times. And here's the point. Peter's destiny is different. There are Judas's, there are Peter's. And there's a difference. Peter's story does not end in failure. And no one else's story has to end in failure either. Second question that's going to come up is the fruit. What is it about the fruit? I feel like I'm telling a Seinfeld joke or something like that. Oh, the fruit, what is that referring to? Some people might say that the refruit is talking about adding more people to, uh, inviting more people to become Jesus followers. And that's entirely possible, but when we read through the context and we look at the whole scope of things, that's probably not the likeliest option. Could he be referring to Character like uh, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, self-control. That might get us a little bit closer, but, you know, as complex as John is, he doesn't like lists. He likes to focus in on just one or two things. And in the very next passage, it talks about that unconditional love that we were talking about in the beginning, that, that command to love people as I have loved you. So chances are... What the fruit is, is unconditional love. You're doing a great job. Exposition can get really heavy, so hey, we just got a little bit more and we're going to turn the corner, okay? We're going to talk about the crux. The crux, remember, sitting at the center, is to remain in Jesus. Now, that might seem really mysterious, but actually, it's pretty simple. To remain means to, to stay, to stick, to hold fast, to endure, to persist. Uh, there's an older word that's actually a really beautiful word that, uh, that's often used for this as well. And in a few moments, we're going we're gonna to have a special song from our friends at Grace Chapel with the same title and a spoken word in the midst. It's going to be an opportunity for us to enter into this subject prayerfully. And that word's simply abide. 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 But what does all of this have to do with people pleasing and navigating our way to a better love? Well, we don't know much about the setting of this gospel of John. When it was written, we don't know the people that it was handed to definitively. If you wrote down all of the ideas about the author and the date and the setting, you would have more books and could probably fill the entire world. But there are a couple of hints about the situation that this gospel was being handed to. And chances are it was being handed to a group of Jesus followers who were being kicked out of the synagogue because of their faith in Jesus. There was an uprising The Jews were tired of this idea that Jesus was the Messiah and people who held the faith in Jesus as the Messiah were being persecuted and they were being told to leave. We get a sense of that in John chapter 12 and right after this passage in John chapter 16, Jesus predicts that that very thing will happen to them. They will be kicked out of the synagogues and this is a big deal. This is a big deal because the synagogue was the center of life. If you were kicked out of the synagogue, you were ostracized, you were disowned, and you were shamed. There were financial implications that were probably involved. And in John 12, John says this. About many of the Jewish leaders, the reason that they didn't believe in Jesus publicly, even though they did it privately, is because they were afraid of being kicked out of the synagogue. And then he takes it one step further by saying, because they loved human praise more than they loved praise from God. There's the tension. There's the tension pleasing people, conditional love, for whatever gain that might be for us, whether that's a financial gain, whether that's social status, uh, whether, that's, uh, whether that's human praise, all that makes loving people unconditionally virtually impossible to do because, because it treats people as a means to an end. When Jesus came into the world and he washed the feet of the person who would betray him, and when he went to the cross to die for the sins of humanity, Jesus, he not only showed us what unconditional love could look like in the world, he challenged his disciples to take on that unconditional love also. But, and this is an important but, but, even for those of us who have taken up that call we still experience the pull of people pleasing uh, the pull of people pleasing uh, to turn to some form of public acceptance as a way to as a way to experience and accomplish and accomplish the good life and here is jesus point here is what jesus is saying unconditional love Cannot be manufactured. Unconditional love. Cannot be manufactured. Remain in me. Stay with me. Let every part of you stay with me. And then we we can bear that kind of fruit together. We can bear that kind of fruit together. When people pleasing threatens to prevent us from the joy of, from enjoying love as it was meant to be, how can we grow the kind of love that that gives us life? Remaining in Jesus or persisting with Jesus is the way to stay and grow in God's life-giving love. Let me say that again. Remaining in Jesus is the way to stay and grow in God's life, giving love. Just this morning, I read the the story of John Ivanowski, who was diagnosed with with kidney disease last year, and who was shocked and surprised that anonymous that an anonymous kidney donor came forward. He said, usually a person is on kidney dialysis for five, six, seven, eight years before a, before a donor ever comes forward. But this wasn't just the story of a, of, a, of a kidney donation. This was also the story of a disobedient daughter. It turns out that it wasn't John's only surprise that he would receive a kidney, but after the surgery went through, he found out that his 25-year-old daughter was the one who did it. And that's significant because he explicitly told her that she could not be the kidney donor. But she said to herself, I don't care. I'm not going to let him live this way and when he found out he was he was he was shocked he cried but he was grateful he was grateful if a love like that is if it's worth gaining if it's worth keeping if it's worth growing in then remaining in Jesus is worth everything it's worth everything So what about you? What about you? In what relationships do you feel trapped by conditional love instead of the better kind of love? And what parts of you are hesitant to let Jesus into those relationships to bring life, freedom, and healing? Could remaining in Jesus um, at work renew a relationship that has turned sour? Could remaining in Jesus um, give you new, new eyes on a friendship that has mostly been transactional, that has mostly been about what you could get from them and what they can get from you? Or could remaining in Jesus... Even take us a step further as we get out of the morning and make, get up from the morning and make a decision to invite Jesus into our day to see him throughout our day could that be could that open up our heart and our eyes to, to the depth of god 's love and how much God loves us uh, last week pastor brian he he opened up the series uh, he talked in his his message on the Good Shepherd about how we are like sheep, and in so many ways, we we are like sheep. We're desperate. We're dependent on leadership. We we need a leader, and and sometimes we're kind of foolish. Uh, but that, of course, that is a metaphor, and, and and I want to remind you of that as I close this passage, um, and as as I close this message, and we turn just for just a moment to that book, The Greatest Salesman in the World, where Hafid discovers a a special scroll um, and before we go to this uh, special presentation from Grace Chapel I want to remind you of that because because yes much like we are much like sheep but as we as we remain and as perhaps some of us persist and some of us persist maybe even for the very first time I'm going to invite you as I read this to put aside your inner sheep And to channel your inner lion. I will persist until I succeed. In the Orient, young bulls are tested for the fight arena in a certain manner. Each is brought to the ring and allowed to attack a picador who pricks them with a lance. The bravery of each bull is then rated with care. According to the number of times he demonstrates his willingness to charge in spite of the sting of the blade. Henceforth, I will recognize that each day I am tested by life in a like manner. If I persist, I will continue to try. If I continue to charge forward, I will succeed. I will persist until I succeed. I was not delivered unto this world in defeat, nor does failure course through my veins. I am not a sheep waiting to be prodded by my shepherd. I am a lion, and I refuse to talk, to walk, to sleep with the sheep. I will hear not those who weep and complain, for their disease is contagious. Let them join the sheep. The slaughterhouse of failure is not my destiny. I will persist until I succeed. Always will I take another step. If that is of no avail, I will take another, and yet another. In truth, one step at a time is not too difficult. I will persist until I succeed. I will persist until I succeed. Let me invite you into just a moment of prayerful prayerful consideration as we enjoy this song together, Abide with a Special Spoken Word.
1: I depend on you, and I depend on you, for the sun to rise, for my sleep at night, and I depend on you, yes, I depend on The way, the truth, and the line. You're the well that never runs dry. I'm the branch and you are the vine. Draw me close and teach me to abide. Be my strength, my song in the night. Be my all, my treasure, my pride. your mind. draw me close and teach me to abide
2: He is the vine and we are the branches So why is it so hard for us plants to stay planted Grafted in despite our sin he said his grace is what granted The title friend is what he gives to those who obey his commands. Abide in me and I in you is what he told us to do. Yet we abide in other things like they'll produce good fruit. No, he didn't choose him. Thank God he chose me and you. We ask for sights unseen and more good deeds to do. But there's one work for you. And this one work is true. Just abide in the one who can produce good fruit. And that's always been God. That's why he came down to us. Despite burnt offerings rising, they couldn't get high enough. That's why he sent us his son to do what no man could do. He says, abide in me because he's enough for you.
1: I depend on you. You're the way, the truth, and the light. You're the well that never runs dry. I'm the branch and you are the vine. Draw me close and teach me to abide. Be my strength, my song in the night. treasure my prize. I am yours forever, you're mine. Draw me close and teach me to abide.